Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stansel. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Welcome Farm Bits followers to the 43rd episode of the Farm Bits podcast. We are continuing on in our precision crop protection series with this episode and are focusing on spray application technology. For this episode, we're joined by Sam Marks, who is a current PhD student in the Biological Systems Engineering Department here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Sam did his master's at UNL and went on to work at Capstan Ag before returning to Nebraska to start his PhD. At Capstan, Sam worked on a variety of projects and was the engineering lead on an aerial application technology project. In this episode, we will get into all things spray control, from ground rigs to aerial applicators. Spray control is a critical topic in crop protection, so let's get right to our conversation with Sam. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about what exactly your role at Capstan was and some of the projects that you worked on? I know you mentioned one that you got to commercial availability, Yeah. So uh, when I started there, I did a little bit with liquid fertilizer application systems, um, just trying to come up with, there was a lot of issues with dynamic responses. So I did a little bit with that. Um, But about not even quite six months after I started, I got involved in their um, aerial project. It was more of an idea at the time. Uh, I started by going up to Canada and strapping a ground rig pinpoint system on a helicopter. And we, uh, we basically made it do section control on a very high resolution. So instead of half boom, which is what they had, we were able to do every three nozzles. So we did, um, I think they were spaced at 12 inches. So we did like a 36 inch resolution at 60 miles an hour, which was a pretty cool, uh, feat. So again, that was using all ground rig stuff. We had, I think it was a Trimble display on there. So we were using the section control of that. Um, But that got us kind of thinking into the world of aerial spray. Um, So that same fall, I went to the National Ag Aviation Association convention and just started asking questions. And I I met with a bunch of pilots. I met with pilots afterwards. And that kind of formulated uh, sort of a plan of, you know, direction that we needed to head. And and yeah, so I was the the engineering lead on that project for three and a half years. Um, so we focused on fixed wing egg aviation, so the high speed turbine uh, turbine powered aircraft. And we <clears throat> eventually came up with a PWM system that was enclosed within a boom a boom shell um, that we could basically, you know, we were still kind of in the learning stages at the time, but we could do. Um, pressure control, rate control, we could turn different nozzles on and off. So unlike a ground rig where you have to have that overlap of your flat fans, you could have sets of three nozzles. And so one could be um, a large droplet, one could be a medium droplet, and one could be a small droplet. Um, you could put deflection on one. So if you want to do fungicide, you have that at a 45 degree angle, only turn on that nozzle. Now you have a very fine droplet being sprayed. Mm-hmm. If you want to switch over you don't have to go turn nozzles anymore you just poke a button on a display it changes your profile and uh then then you could go out and spray 
you know, a, a contact herbicide. <clears throat> um, so it was really, it was kind of a neat, neat project. Uh, we had a lot of heartache trying to get it to work, you know, cause on a ground rig, you can be in the sprayer and you can see what's happening and you can mm-hmm. diagnose on the go. Whereas in a plane, you have to load it up, pilot takes off, goes and sprays a little bit. You can be on the contact, you know, over radio or cell phone to an extent, but it's still not the same as seeing what's happening. And then they land, they just, you discuss things, figure it out. Well, every time you take off and land, I mean, that's not only time consuming, but it's pretty pricey as well. So, um, yeah, so we, we were, we were blessed with some really good cooperators that just helped us figure out what we needed to do, how we do it. Um, yeah, so it was a really neat project, uh, and that's mostly what I focused on. So. so it sounds like you have a lot of experience working both with aerial applications and ground rigs. I guess one of the things that I'm kind of curious to learn more about would be like pulse width modulating nozzles and variable orifice nozzles, things for spray control. Sure. Uh, could you give us kind of an <coughs> overview of how those systems work? Sure. So the the main concept of PWM is it's it's not um, it's not about like coverage per se. Uh, so the whole idea, the whole premise behind PWM is pressure control. So you can select a nozzle um, that you can basically decide what droplet category you want to spray, and now you can maintain that pressure and flow, but alter your speed, I guess you could say. So on, on the ground rig side, think about it as when you're entering uh, or, you know, exiting your headland, you speed up your sprayer. Well, normally the only way to compensate is to increase your pressure. Well, as pressure increases, now your droplet size decreases because your hydraulic atomizer generates a different atomization profile. So with PWM, instead of increasing pressure to maintain GPA rate, you can actually um, increase your duty cycle. So you maintain pressure. So if you want 40 PSI to be your target pressure, because you know that sprays the category you want, um, now you can speed up. It increases duty cycle to increase your actual flow rate to maintain your GPA, um, but maintain the, the desired droplet size that you want. So it's it's actually a pretty clever technology. Uh, it's been around since the late 80s is when Ken Giles first um, did some work on it at UC Davis, did the patent on it, and then Capstan bought the patent from UC Davis. Um, and now you see it commercially available on every major OEM plus a lot of the smaller companies as well. So so PWM in its most basic form, that's, that's what it does, is it maintains your droplet size through the field. So um, when you apply that to an aircraft, it's kind of the same idea to an extent. Um, the range of operation isn't quite as big because you're you're going so fast that some of those things aren't the same. So you don't speed up to go into a headland. You know, if you mm. slow down on your turn, you die. So, <laughs> um, so there's some interesting differences there on the the where it really comes into play in the aerial world is, um, you know, if you want to increase your swath width or if you want to. Oh, spray at a different rate. Um, you know, there's there's some different caveats there that PWM was really useful for. So if you want to get a different droplet size, so nozzle plays a huge part. Not just nozzle size plays a huge part into droplet size creation on on the aerial world with that secondary air shear. So um, 
maybe you want to run a different nozzle that normally you couldn't because it would be outside your flow rate scope. Now you can pulse that, have adjacent nozzles pulsing so you still get that blend. Um, so there's a lot of different things that you can do with PWM on the aerial side as well. But yeah, on, on, the, on the ground side, it's pressure control. Um, <clears throat> that technology was advanced in the early 2010 era um, where they did pinpoint, where Capstan did pinpoint. And the cool thing there is it had turn comp in it. So think about a 120 foot sprayer as you turn, um, if you're turning left, your inside nozzles are going slower. Your outside nozzles are going a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can change that duty cycle across the entire boom in sort of a diagonal pattern. So your actual GPA application on the field can remain a lot more consistent than if you didn't have that turn comp. So little things like that just got built on over and over. And um, I think that's to me, still one of the biggest advantages to PWM is its its kind of versatility. Um, variable orifice nozzles or variable geometry nozzles, so Veritarget would be one. Um, I think those are great in a specific situation. I'm not as familiar with them. Um, <clears throat> the idea there is you have a nozzle that sprays your whatever fan angle it is, and then it can maintain a droplet spectra. So even if you increase pressure, it still maintains that same droplet spectra. So you can do flow flow changes uh, over a speed change, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I read, I'm trying to remember where I read it. I think it was um, Tom Wolf from, I, have, I don't know if you're familiar with Sprayers. I think Sprayers101.com. Oh, yeah. So I think he had something written about, if you look at, um, kind of your coefficient of variation across the boom. Well, pressure has a, <clears throat> a quadratic relationship with flow. So as that pressure changes, it actually has a more uh, or an increased um, change on your flow rate. So if you have just a little bit of discrepancy even between nozzles, you could be spraying way more on one nozzle than the other or at the end of your booms where you're getting a pressure decrease. So, so I, I think there's some things there where I think the technology has a lot of promise, but I don't see it widely adapted and I are adopted. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? See, I forgot already what our question was. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think you, you covered it pretty well. I thought it was really interesting about the, uh, the point you made about the, the headlands mm-hmm. on the field. That's a real problem area, especially mm-hmm. with weed control. And mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I can see where this technology could be a big help for, uh, you know, preventing anything like, uh, you know, excess herbicide rate causing mm-hmm. a carryover issue. And then also ensuring that you have, you know, good, good coverage of, uh, the area, those headlands, if you're turning or something, yeah. uh, to be sure that your coverage is good and your efficacy is also. Yeah. That's, that. I mean, that's where it comes down to. If you can get what you want on target every time, you know, weed resistance is going to start to diminish, um, over application, which can be a problem for say runoff or, you know, there's a lot of little caveats that can come in with that, that I think just getting the right amount of spray on the right part of the field is really important. And I think that's where PWM, uh, does a good job. I think there's technology that could, could come out or that's kind of on the verge of coming out that I think could really help with that as well. So, and do you think there are any like drift uh, reduction <clears throat> effects of, of PWM and stuff like that. I know you didn't necessarily mention that directly, but if you're able to keep that 
that profile yeah. the right right way. I would yeah. imagine that helps with drift. Right? So the, the dirty D word, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to say drift reduction. Well, I guess you could say drift reduction, but drift mitigation, mitigation is, is kind of the right term to use there. So that's exactly right. So if you can maintain pressure and spray at what you actually, you know, what the label says, what you want to be spraying, um, now you're not increasing pressure. Well, hydraulic atomizer, if you increase pressure, you're creating a smaller droplet sure. um, or a, your atomization profile, the curve is basically shifted over into the, over into the smaller range. So, so yeah, definitely that helps with drift mitigation. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, and that's, that's gotta be a big deal right now, especially with all the, you know, all that we've heard about, um, dicamba drift and, and mm -hmm. all these other issues that are going on in, in agriculture. Um, but I guess kind of, kind of talking more on this interplay of aerial applicators and ground rigs, uh, you mentioned like the secondary air shear and, mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of the uniqueness that plays with, uh, spray planes. What are some of those challenges that have to be accounted for on these different application platforms that <clears throat> kind of force changes in the technology or even the way that that technology is, is implemented? Sure. So I'll just give you some really basic examples in the aerial world. Um, so secondary air shear, basically it, it starts with initial droplet out of your hydraulic atomizer. And then depending on that size, that air impacts it and it blows into smaller droplets. So um, things that have a big play on that secondary air shear is fan angle, uh, deflection angle, and pressure or exit velocity <clears throat> of those droplets coming out. So if you get closer to matching um, your exit velocity with your your actual air velocity, it's so that relative velocity is decreased. So that has a big impact on that on that secondary air shear. So one of the things that happened in the aerial world quite a while ago was, you know, if you look at spray planes or crop dusters from way back mm -hmm. in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they have these huge vortices coming out the end. Sure. <clears throat> um, right now, it's it's a rule that you can have a boom width of no more than, I always get a little bit mixed up, it's either 75 or 65. I'm pretty sure it's 75% of your wingspan. Okay. So basically, what you're doing there is, <clears throat> if, if you look at the science behind that wingtip vortice, right around the wing, it, it says it'll trap, you know, X diameter of droplets. So let's say it's a 300 micron droplet. Mm -hmm. As you expand out of that vortice center, that axis of that vortice, sure. um, that droplet size decreases. So as you get out, out, out. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so the idea there is if you can just get those droplets away from those vortices, mm -hmm. now there's less potential for them to be trapped sure. up inside of that up inside of that wingtip vortice. So even doing something as simple as reducing boom width, um, I think I think it was found that you could actually maintain your swath width because you still get that wake right. pushing the, the spray out, but now you're not getting that stack up in the middle. Mm -hmm. So instead of having this pattern where it's, you know, you want a nice trapezoidal pattern. Well, with wingtip vortices, you get a big spike in the middle or it takes those smaller droplets in whatever direction your wind is it pushes them off so sure. even little things like that have made a big impact on <clears throat> on actually getting spray on target so yeah I, I know a lot of people see a yellow airplane flying in the sky and they're like oh man curse the devil yeah <laughs> but a, a lot of thought has been put into how can we 
get the spray where we want it to and be as efficacious as possible without off-target movement. And sure. I think there's still a lot of work in there. Um, another one was using using a, a flow control. So they don't call it rate controllers on, uh. for whatever reason, they call them a flow control. <clears throat> but the idea there is now instead of using wind speed, sure. you can actually use a GPS figure out ground speed and it adjusts your pressure huh. to match your ground speed. So if you're flying with the wind, you know, if you have a five mile an hour headwind, which yeah. usually a lot of guys spray with a crosswind, it just makes it more consistent. Sure. But say you need to fly into a headwind, well, your airspeed will stay the same, but your ground speed will be 10 miles sure. an hour different. So sure. even just being able to control your flow for that is, is, has been a big, big benefit. For uniformity. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess uh, my next question will kind of gear towards the difference between aerial and ground rigs again, but more from an integrated pest management perspective. I can think of some examples of pests like uh, two-spotted spider mite and corn. That's a bottom-up pest in the mm -hmm. corn canopy, and you really want to protect the middle part of that corn plant about ear height. Um, then there's other pests like fusarium head blight and wheat you're trying to protect the head so yeah. only pretty much the upper canopy i'm i'm just curious about technologies and the difference between aerial and ground rigs what types of technologies are there out there to deal with different challenges with pests um, that might might be in a different might sure. have a different target in the, <clears throat> canopy. the kind of the canopy yeah. penetration sure aspect. so yeah. I, I know that there's been some different studies done on um, like electrostatic spraying where they used a very small droplet, the electrostatic. And, you know, the, the evidence showed that there was some bottom, basically it would attract that, that spray to the bottom of some, it was in cotton that they did that. Mm -hmm. They might've done it in other ones as well. The problem there was um, the electrostatic rate that they were spraying was like a third, the label rate. So it's already a non-starter, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but it showed, you know, promising results. So there's a disconnect there between <clears throat> what's on our label and what our technology can physically do. Um, you know, there's, uh, this is where I'm probably not, I would say I'm not the expert here, but you know, there's people that know a lot more about um, canopy penetration. So if you have a higher pressure on a ground rig, theoretically that creates a higher velocity spray. Well, that higher velocity is gonna shoot it down into the canopy. Ideally, you get a, some of those smaller droplets would kind of pillow back up and get the, the underside of your leaves. Um, but on the aerial side, that would be something I would have to ask some of my pilot friends because I'm I'm not familiar yeah. with how they how they manage doing something like that. So that's kind of a non-answer answer. But uh, I think that's going to be really dependent on the application and the applicator. Um, as far as technology goes, yeah, I think it, I think it's just trying to match what we have to what needs to be done, and yeah. and um, you know I, I could think of other things like <clears throat> the spray hoods that might try to trap that spray in there. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the sprayer; it's a European one. They have an air assist where it basically mm -hmm. helps trap that spray. That would get it down into the canopy. So. So are there technologies? Yeah. Uh, do I know about them or how to use them specifically for what you asked? No, I'm not your guy, unfortunately. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned earlier when you went up to Canada and were, you know, you were working on a, a 
put a pinpoint system on a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a ton of buzz right now in ag about variable rate applications, not just for fertilizer, but also starting to look at some of these crop protection products. Mm-hmm. Can we only put it in certain areas of the field that need it? You know, we got soil type changes or we have different hybrids in different areas. How can we get that variable rate wise on that field? So what really is a reasonably achievable resolution for these aerial applicators to get to? And, and what is the technology that enables that to happen? Um, so a standard, you know, just flow control and nozzles. I don't know. I'd have to run some math on that to see. Um, you can make fairly quick changes. You know, sure. I, I think I think there have even <clears throat> been some people down in like the Mississippi Delta that have done variable rate application mm-hmm. using like a sat lock flow control. Um, I think PWM, when we were running some numbers on that with the Capstan Swath Pro system, uh, I'm just spitballing some numbers here, but I think we had it figured out that we could make a rate change in about, it was either five or 10 feet. Wow. Um, yeah. At, 100, were, at 160 miles. Even at 100, and I think that was using 150 miles an hour. And so basically you have this, this hundred millisecond delay time between your pulses. Um, So if you do a hundred milliseconds and figure out what that is in feet per second, it was, Mm -hmm. it was somewhere around that five to 10 feet area that you could do a rate change. Um, so pretty significant. That's actually something, one of our first beta operators, when we put the system on, um, you know, when you normally when you turn your flow off, you can either hit a button which will uh, shut your pump off, or you mm-hmm. can actually pull your suck back lever, and that actually diverts your flow back up to your tank, and it okay. pulls a suction on your boom. So the idea there is so you're not dripping out. Sure. Um, and when we switched it over to those nozzles or those PWM solenoids shutting off, he actually had to adjust when he turned them on and off because he was leaving gaps at the end of the field. Like it was, it was, it was that a, fast. It was about yeah. 10 to 15 feet different than what he was used to. So it was a pretty interesting deal. Yeah. yeah. So, so technologies like PWM, I think, you know, they, that was one of our value statements, albeit the industry is still not quite there with wanting variable rate pesticide application. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as that time comes around, yeah, I think there's already technology out there. It's going to be equipped to do it. That could be ready to do that. Yeah, you could throw a script in uh, right to that spray plane, and it could make that change relatively quickly. You know, we're, we're kind of talking about aerial applicators, and then Rantizo is another um, guest that we had. we had. We had Sam Pendleton from Rantizo on the show earlier in this series, and he was talking about UAVs and how they're starting to work into kind of this aerial spray package. <clears throat> what do you think are the challenges for optimizing spray patterns with UAVs? Can some of the same technology actually be implemented on UAVs or is it too bulky to, to kind of go on to those systems? What are your thoughts there? So uh, there's actually a lot of work being done in that area. It's, it's a little outside my knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been involved. Uh, there's um, RPASS, R-P-A-S-S, is, I don't know if they're an organization or just a, I'm not quite sure what they are. But anyways, they hold a yearly conference and it's people coming together to address actually these specific issues. Like, okay, what, you know, how do, how do UAVs work for spraying, um, spot spraying, broadcast spraying, you know, you name it. Um, so there is a lot of research being done. There's, there's pattern tests, uh, <clears throat> ability coming out 
when they first came out, I remember watching a video from, I believe it was South Korea, and this UAV was spraying, I don't know, six or eight feet above the canopy with a, it was like a 11003, you know, just a really fine droplet. Yeah. And that yeah. stuff was just going everywhere. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that's so painful to watch, you yeah. know, because that's the opposite of what we want to, what we want to see. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the problem with things like PWM, at least again, it's been a couple of years since I've been there, but in its current form, I think it's too heavy because mm -hmm. you have to have a controller, which you could probably control one or two nozzles with a small PCB microcontroller and sure. repackage that. Um, but even the solenoid itself is pretty heavy. So that reduces your payload capacity. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, there's some talk about like variable geometry orifice or something of that nature. So I think the big thing is still trying to figure out what are we using it for? What kind of droplet size do we need? And then what kind of nozzle can produce that um, without all these underwash? You know, if you have four rotors, uh, the pairs yeah. are running counter rotation to each other. Sure. So your disturbance underneath that is pretty nightmarish in all right. honesty. <clears throat> um, and there's, there's even some people doing some CFD work on that topic to try to figure out, can we, can we look at this downwash and, and maybe use it to our advantage? So I, I think there's, there's a lot of people in that realm that are really working hard at making a good use of UAVs. I see a lot of promise in them, specifically spot spraying, opening fields up. If you have a condition that you know, say it's a small field and you just, you can't go in it because it's too wet. Um, if you don't have a helicopter around, well, you don't want to fly an airplane over that. So what's that, what's that leave you? Historically, it may just go untreated, but now right. there are at least options there. Sure. Um, you know, there's some thought about swarm uh, UAVs going out. I think it still comes down to payload, um, how long your battery lasts mm -hmm. and just, you know, the, the actual efficiency of them. But again, uh, this isn't really my area of expertise. Sure. So I think there are people that are like really working hard to answer yeah. these questions and make it work. So I, I'm excited to see where it goes. You know, I think yeah. there's a lot of promise there for sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that's a really good, I think that's really good feedback, especially like after hearing from Rantizo, because I think it's a lot of the same things, but it also points to some of the challenges, mm -hmm. right? That, that you mm -hmm. have to still address and it may not you know be easy to say from the from the commercial side sometimes so now that we've kind of covered like all these different application technologies that are currently out there and mm -hmm. kind of starting to get into what people are working on next what are do you, what do you think are some of the major challenges that we need to try to address and kind of be like priorities for us to address as a spray industry and what do you think are some of the most exciting opportunities to actually advance technology to meet some of those challenges? So my number one thing, and this just goes from being out in the field is operator training. Um, yeah, I know that's a sad thing to say, but <clears throat> in all honesty, you know, you get these co-ops and I don't want to dog on co-ops. Some of them are great and they train their people extremely well. I just think back to my days in the co-op where I was you know, here, read through this book, go take this mm -hmm. test. Oh, look, you're a certified applicator. Here's a, it was, I drove an old F-350 pickup sprayer. Sure. And uh, I think I got like a half hour rundown on it. And then I was set free, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I am willing to bet that I probably sprayed a lot of chemical off target, wrong rates. Sure. 
shoot probably in the wrong spot sometimes, you know? <laughs> um, so I think operator training and making sure that we have a consistent, it, we're actually spraying what need, again, it goes back to this on target spray. So spraying the right thing at the right time at the right place is huge. Environmental conditions sometimes impede upon that. Um, you know, cost impedes upon that. But yeah. I, I think that would be our number one fix to chemical waste, mm. reducing that, mm -hmm. um, reducing off-target movement. Just to me, those are the big thing. That's that's the number one thing is operator training. Right. Um, technology to help that. I think there's already a lot of technology in place <clears throat> that as far as the research side goes, I, I don't know if they're all commercially available. Um, but there's research that's been done where you can have wind speed as an input and you can change the spray that's coming out. You mm -hmm. know, that's something um, I'm actually working on as well is for given wind speed, altering what's happening out of a, out of a nozzle. Um, so there's, there's advancements on that where if that was all automated, well now operator training might not be as important. You sure. know, we have, mm -hmm. I didn't have GPS on my F-350 either. <laughs> had an old Raven 440. It was a monster. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if, if you have automated site-specific applications happening, well, now we can be more precise with that application. And it operator training may now just be this lever makes the sprayer go forward and backwards. You mm -hmm. show up in a field and it could do everything else. Um, there's some hesitancy to that because, you know, we still see people spraying in conditions that aren't ideal and they don't want anyone to know that they were spraying right. in 15, right. 20 mile an hour winds yeah. when they shouldn't have been making that application because they just have to get the acres done. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if we could get to a point where maybe we're automating stuff a little bit more and operator training isn't as necessary. And I think, I think a lot of the technology is there. Sure. You know, I, I think we're there. It's just kind of enabling it. Right. So makes sense. Yeah, so if we go that direction in the future towards more automation for spray operations, I could see where that could really be beneficial as far as like making sure the applications are, you know, on target at the right rate, making sure things like sprayer cleanouts mm -hmm. happen when they're supposed to, mm -hmm. when time when time management is really important during the growing Logistics season. and record keeping yeah. are huge in that world. And sometimes, again, operator training, they're just not done. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so some of like the automation things that like what kind of future for automation do you see for like how will that change um, like spray application like the op from an operation mm -hmm. standpoint? Will, will we have more smaller sprayers that are more automated? um kind of working together or hmm. will we go more towards more speed um <clears throat> ground speed i mean sure like, where do you kind of see that operation going that's a question that a lot of people haven't answered uh, <laughs> including myself you know you you can try to run some numbers and figure out oh it would take this many smaller machines at this price point mm -hmm. running this fast 24 hours a day versus the one guy spraying this many acres in a 12 hour span, so on and so forth. Um, I don't know, I'm hesitant to answer that just because there's advantages and disadvantages. And I, I think if there was a clear cut answer, we'd be there because the technology's there. Like we're, we could, we could automate a sprayer and have it 
have a, a swarm of small sprayers go out and spray, there's liability there because now who's to blame? You know, was it the right. algorithm? Is it the guy that loaded it? Is it the the company that <clears> the it? company that yeah. developed it? Um, so there's just there's so many unknowns that part of me would love to see that happen, but I I don't know if I ever will. If that makes sense, I, I hope I do. I hope yeah. I'm, you know, I hope I can see outside of a research environment a swarm of robots going out and just doing its thing, and everyone's happy. You know, yeah. that would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, I just on a on a large scale practical side, I don't. I know there's a lot of questions there. No, I, I think that's those are all really, really good points. And sometimes it's easy to to think that the technology availability is what really drives a lot of the adoption and um, you know advancement of the industry. But really, it's it's how does that technology interplay with a lot of the the regulations, red tape, and also perceptions that are out there with people. So. Perceptions, I'm going to side story again. Yeah. Um, so I read a book once and it talked about the adoption curve of new, you could apply it to new technology and it's um, to be fully adopted. It's like a 20 year time span. So in your first is it two to five years or something, you get like 2%. So it's those early adopters, the people who are just curious, they don't care what it costs. They're like, Hey, let's try it. Mm-hmm. And then that curve basically <clears throat> increases, but it takes about 20 years. Um, and PWM is actually a good, a good example there. You know, it came yeah. out in the late, late eighties prototype idea. It was commercially developed 94, 95, mid nineties. And it took until the mid two thousands before every OEM had it on their sprayer. So it makes sense. It does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's definitely reflected in pretty much a lot of, a lot of the data yeah. out there. So anything you see promising, you know, just realize it might be 20 years before yeah. we see that widely adopted. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about the future and I guess, you know, one thing that Zach and I had kind of talked about previously was your PhD research and kind of where that's fitting into the, mm. the future. Mm-hmm. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about that PhD project and sure. how you kind of having that fit into advancement of the spray application industry? Sure. So I'll tell you why I ended up doing what I'm doing. Um, I would go to wind tunnels and do nozzle testing, high-speed wind tunnels, and I would stare at nozzles on the back of an airplane and I would just like, I would watch GoPro videos of it and it would just, I don't know, there was something about that atomization process that just made my mind go, that's really interesting. And I'd sure mm-hmm. like to know more about it. Um, I, I think there are people doing that in the industrial side, you know, automotive injection, diesel injection, um, applica- uh, industrial applications. So coating, spray coatings spray drying, you know, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of research being done there. And I think the nozzle manufacturers, egg egg nozzle manufacturers are also doing a lot of research in-house, but there's not a lot um, publicly available. So I was just, I was curious more than anything. So what I've, what I've decided to do is actually start looking at um, some CFD simulation. So computational Mm -hmm. fluid dynamic simulation of spray nozzles. So I've, I've found a commercial package, ended up taking a bunch of classes that were really hard <laughs> that I probably still don't understand as well as I should um, to try to get a better grasp of the fluid dynamics and fluid mechanics happening um, at this nozzle. And basically what I'm trying to do is, is simulate this. So 
I found this package that <clears throat> you can actually generate the spray where it has the waves and the blobs oh, and the no. cool stuff. And then when it hits a certain asperity, asphericity, when it's round, <laughs> um, it basically takes that and says, you are now a round particle of this size. And then it captures that and continues to move on. So <clears throat> um, the cool things there is you can actually generate like some droplet, like an atomization profile. It's sure. slightly different than what we see when we do wind tunnel testing, but I think it could be correlated. But the whole idea here is, okay, well, if I can simulate reality or at least get kind of close, mm -hmm. now I can start making changes to that nozzle geometry and I can start to see, well, what has an impact on what? Again, I, I would be willing to bet someone from T-Jet could probably school me on this in an instant, <laughs> um, but I'm not, I'm not seeing much out <clears throat> in the public domain. So uh, I, I think being able to look at, okay, what what impacts this spray atomization profile and then start transitioning that I, I have a keen interest in aerial high-speed aerial application mm -hmm. as you're probably well aware by now <laughs> um you know what what kind of changes can we make on that nozzle geometry that would have a large impact on that aerial side i think we kind of already touched on barriers to adoption earlier but you seem to have a few really good stories. Do you have any stories from down in your time down in Louisiana or Mississippi where you kind of were able to identify or maybe even, you know, up in South Dakota, something like that, where you were able to identify some barriers to adoption of, of new technologies that you were trying to put on aircraft? Perception. Yeah. Um, if, if you, <laughs> if the operator perceives that it's not going to work, it won't work. From the work. very get go, no matter yeah. how much. Yeah. Yeah. It, it will not work. And yeah, ran into that with one operator. Um, I don't even remember his name. Uh, hopefully he never sees this. Uh, <clears throat> it, it was just really frustrating, you know, cause yeah. even when we were putting the system on his plane, he was just like trying to find holes in it. And it was, it was a little frustrating, mm -hmm. you know? So I think perception plays a big part into that. And you know, even thinking outside that specific example, where does perception come from? You know, the coffee shop down on the corner yeah. gas station, these guys talking, watching, you know, oh, did you see Joe out there? Mm -hmm. What's he using? So, you know, I think perception, both positive and negative, play a, a big part in adoption, whether it works good or not. Right. Um, I, I think someone <laughs> believing in it is or not believing in it is going to be the ultimate factor unfortunately yeah. so one of the uh questions that we ask in every single interview is if our guest has any advice and so in this case i'd like to ask you for any advice that you might have for those who are either thinking about pursuing careers in spray technology or just those maybe pilots or farmers out there mm -hmm. applicators who are trying to improve their spray operations in general <clears throat> mm. Well, I think in the spray world, there really aren't a lot of people, um, especially on the academic research side <clears throat> with a focus on spray technology. So there's still things to be done. You know, we're still learning. Um, so I, I think that would be a useful, a useful thing if, if there's any interest there. Um, oh, as far as operators, farmers interested um 
I know that's that's so hard for me to answer because it's so case by case and everyone, yeah. you know, Everybody it's easier it's easier to have a one-on-one conversation with someone with a specific question, which I'm happy to answer world. Um, <laughs> you know, on hey, I'm doing this thing, what do you think? And if I don't know, which I'm not the expert on many things as I've hopefully very clearly stated. Um, but I know a lot of people in this in this little niche world that we have. So um, I, I think finding the right person to talk to is is a big deal and, and making sure that you're getting good factual data. Thank you very much to Sam Marsh for taking the time to join us here on the Farm Bits podcast. I actually hang out in Sam's office pretty much all the time. His desk is right next to mine. So we spent a lot of time together, but it was really great to hear his expertise kind of in this format, being able to present uh, a lot of the technologies that he has, he has helped develop. Uh, I really thought my favorite part of the episode was uh, hearing about the aerial applicators and how we're able to achieve such high resolutions and even provide a case study of you know where some of those gaps were in the field and they didn't quite have the, the blended pulse technology working correctly. But I couldn't believe that we're able to get to five to 10 feet of, of great change resolution for a vehicle operating at 160 miles an hour over, over an airplane. It makes me feel pretty good about the future of variable rate technology you know, for aero applicators in the future. Yeah, that was very impressive. I guess my favorite part was also about uh, the difference between aerial applicators and ground rigs and all the different uh, technologies that are used or applied into both those two uh, systems. I think a lot of times there's uh, kind of a perception that uh, aerial applicators might be the way we did things yesterday and ground rigs are kind of the way of the future. But I think that uh, from what we covered today, we kind of saw that there's technologies that are being applied to both those systems and there's a place for each. Absolutely. No, I think you're spot on with that. And, and I hope that our listeners enjoyed this episode as much as we did. I thought it was a super interesting episode. Uh, next week, we'll be coming with another episode in this Precision Crop Protection Series. So we'll hope you'll tune in for that. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We'd like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect reviews of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits. Oh,